What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the boogie Wooker man. Tell my people and my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. So you said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. following announcement has been paid for by the New World Order. Give it up for the man! Hollywood Hogan is just too sweet. Bring that coward out here. He's going to be high somewhere. And I'll crucify him right in the ring. Where's our hero, Sting? We want Sting! Hey, we want Sting! The man is more powerful than anything else. The preceding announcement has been paid for by the New World Order. This is the two-man power trip of wrestling, brought to you today and powered by the WWE Network. Head on over to wwenetwork.com slash TMPT and start your one month free of the WWE Network, where you can currently stream the entire Monday Night War from both sides of the coin, as you can watch every episode of Raw is War, as well as every episode of Monday Nitro, as the Monday Night War heated up professional wrestling for the Attitude Era and beyond. It's all going on over there at the WWENetwork.com slash TMPT where you can get your one month free courtesy of your buddies here at the two man power trip of wrestling. And if you didn't know by now, my name is Chad. And as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, the one and only John Paz and John today on the show, we are joined by a former WCW television extraordinaire. 
We are joined by a former WCW feature producer and known to many as the voice of the NWO and now the host of the Secrets of WCW Nitro podcast as Neil Pruitt joins today's program. And John, with Neil Pruitt joining us today, it gives us a great opportunity to discuss something I know you love talking about, and that is WCW and the Monday Nitro era of WCW. As we all know the story, WCW destroyed the WWE for a good 80-plus weeks in the Attitude Era, in the era of two Monday Night Wrestling shows, and Neil Pruitt was there for every single part of it to produce some of the television that we'll never forget and some of it that we're going to talk about today in pretty damn good detail with Neil Pruitt, who really saw every single aspect of Monday Nitro be executed to include all the pay-per-views and all the side shows and all the side vignettes and projects that WCW was working on. But we also want to talk about Neil's podcast, which is, like I said, the secrets of WCW Nitro, where he covers all different topics of the show. And if you head on over to his website, you will see that they release scripts from Monday Nitro that he then dedicates episodes of his podcast to where you can kind of follow the script and kind of go through uh, segment by segment with Neil Pruitt what exactly was going on that night in a particular Nitro setting, whether it was live, whether it was a a pay-per-view, whether it was a TV taping, a vignette they were filming. You get to hear how it was all done from the man himself, Neil Pruitt. Now, I also mentioned, known as the voice of the NWO, and you would hear it coming off the top of this episode. The following announcement is paid for by the New World Order. Well, that is Neil Pruitt. And how can you deny he is the voice of the NWO? We heard it throughout the entire run of the NWO. We heard Neil Pruitt's voice at the beginning and at the end of each NWO paid, quote, paid segment that we would see on WCW programming. And and some of those are just absolutely phenomenal when you look back. I mean, whether it was um, the original vignettes where Hogan had the globe and they were kind of talking about the world domination of the NWO or they were breaking down a feud with a personal favorite of John and myself with the Zabisco during the Scott Hall, Eric Bischoff, and Larry Zabisco feud. I mean, so much of that was so key to the success of the NWO and it was all voiced at the time and at the bottom by Neil Pruitt. So we get into all that with the NWO and how it changed professional wrestling and maybe how it changed a lot of the inner workings of WCW as well. So with Neil on the show, I know it's going to be a lot of stuff to digest in this episode. So John, I want to welcome you in here now. Why don't you talk a little bit more about Neil Pruitt? Why don't you talk a little bit more about what Neil Pruitt did for WCW as well as give us now your kind of world-famous network suggestions when it comes to WCW and that Nitro era, and also maybe some of the finer points that we can look forward to in this episode here today with former WCW feature producer, Neil Pruitt. Yes, Chad, back here again at the two-man power trip, and we are dominating this week, of course, like you said, with the former WCW feature producer, Neil Pruitt, and this was a real, real fun ride. You have a big television background yourself, and you love when we get on producers and we get on the -the behind-the-scenes guys in the TV world, and I just love anything WCW, so this was the absolute perfect guest to get on for the two-man power trip. Now, he was obviously a former 
feature producer for WCW, did a lot of things behind the scenes, which we get into in the interview. But most importantly to me and most importantly to a lot of fans, he is the true and real voice of the NWO, the New World Order. Loser. The following announcement has been paid for by the New World Order. Yes, that voice is the golden tongue, the golden voice of one and only Neil Pruitt. And you got to love that. You know, growing up, you were like, whose voice is that? Where did that come from? Is that uh, Bischoff doing something with his voice? Is that Hall and Nash? You, know, you just don't know whose voice that is. But now we know. And it's pretty awesome that he can kind of have that legacy attached to his name that he was the voice of the nwo and it's just truly amazing when you really really think about that i just i just love that and it's just a cool little thing to throw in there and then another thing that we kind of talk about in this you know feature is you know the following announcements the preceding announcements have been paid for by the new world order the nwo commercials and the different things like that he tells a never be never heard before story of how he actually played a fake sting yes he was one of the fake stings when they did the sting figure commercial where the figure is coming down from the ceiling so get if you can on youtube go out of your way or daily motion wherever you can kind of find it try to find that old clip it's really cool and just a really little fun side story um of Neil Pruitt actually being a fake sting. So that is great. Obviously, you know, he's the former voice of the NWO. He worked for WCW as a producer and a feature producer for many, many years. And you can check out his podcast, The Secrets of WCW Monday Nitro, where he gives you so many great and cool behind-the-scenes stories, some of which we talk about in this show, like Roddy Piper going to Alcatraz or NWO sold out the first-ever crazy-ass NWO pay-per-view that they try to pull off from Cedar Rapids, Iowa. So that's a great story. And obviously, if you want the full, long version of that story, go to iTunes, wherever you get your podcast, and check out Secrets of WCW Monday Nitro with Neil Pruitt. Obviously, in this interview, we're also going to discuss WCW personalities like Eric Bischoff, all the members of the NWO, Hulk Hogan, Macho Man Randy Savage, of course, Sting, and the aforementioned Rowdy Roddy Piper. We're going to go real deep and really nail this one. It is so much fun. If you're a WCW fan like myself, I was always a true blue WCW guy, just absolutely loved it, especially during that era. You're going to love this interview. And while I'm at it, talking about the good old days, please... Go to wwnetwork.com slash TMPT for your free month of the WWE Network. You are not going to be sorry about that. Please go to wwnetwork.com slash TMPT for more. Now, my weekly network recommendation on the WWE Network, please go into the search bar. Go into Monday Night Wars check out the nwo episode is entitled the rise of the nwo and you will hear all the goodness of the nwo and possibly one of the very first voices you're going to hear and actually it's actually not possibly it's a fact one of the very first voices that you are going to hear when you play that episode is neil pruitt you're going to hear the voice of the nwo kick it off so again that is wbnetwork.com slash tmpt and my network recommendation is the rise of the nwo which is one of the episodes on the monday night wars good stuff there now sit back relax and enjoy a great interview with the former wcw feature producer himself the host of the secrets of wcw monday nitro podcast neil pruitt Absolutely, and what a fun interview here with Neil Pruitt. 
today on this show and way to talk about WCW. This is uh, always a nice departure from the norm, if you will, from just talking about every aspect of somebody's career. Now we get to kind of really just kind of key in on WCW and support Neil Pruitt without a doubt with the secrets of WCW Nitro podcast. Thank you so much again to Neil for coming on the show. It was a lot of fun and definitely a cool walk down memory lane, which uh, definitely never a problem when we're talking about WCW and the NWO. And speaking of WCW and the NWO, what a great tie-in that we have as TMPT Con 2 is slowly approaching We've got two of the key members of the NWO in attendance for TMPTCon already. And hey, I mean, the man behind WCW, Eric Bischoff, will be joining us. Kevin Nash will be joining us. The Barbarian has just been announced. Ronnie Garvin has just been announced. And a ton of great guests are going to be coming to TMPTCon 2. And you can definitely, definitely make your way down to Richmond, Virginia on May 19th, 2018, and join us for a full day's worth of meet and greets, photo opportunities, vendors, professional wrestlers, the whole nine yards. It's our convention done our way, and we cannot wait for you to join us on May 19th. And we also just announced that the the night of TMPT Con 2, we're going to be heading over to a restaurant in Richmond called the Backyard Grill, and we're going to be hosting an event we're calling the TMPT Con 2 Nightcap which is a Q&A featuring Eric Bischoff where you can come in, you can eat, you can drink, you can hang out with Eric Bischoff, and we're going to have a really exclusive Q&A where you can ask Eric Bischoff any question that you have ever wanted to ask him about WCW and about the NWO. Well, you can do it if you join us at the Backyard Grill, and you can head on over to our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Wrestling for all the information on the TMPT Con 2 Nightcap featuring Eric Bischoff. And as we get closer to this event, folks, you're going to be hearing a lot about CMPT Con 2. We want you to attend. We want you to come out and support the show. But we want you to know that we're bringing you a full day's worth of a wrestling convention the way we would want it done. Because John and I work these conventions all the time. We go to them. We see what's done right, what's done wrong. Well, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel. We're just trying to do it our way and something that we feel is going to be very fan-friendly and very cool. So please make your plans to join us at TMPT. PT Con 2 on May 19th and get on over to the website. Again, it's tmptofwrestling.com. Get the information on TMPT Con 2. We've got hotel information. You can stay on our dime. We've got a great rate for you guys set up through the Holiday Inn. We've gone above and beyond to make this a special event, and we really hope that you join us. So get over there today. And that's enough out of me now. You'll be hearing so much more about TMPT Con 2 in the coming weeks. But let's get it on over to Neil Pruitt and John. Take us the rest of the way. And hit us with a little bit of that good old two-man power trip of wrestling business partner. Let's get this show on the road. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno Sammartino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rhodes, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., Glenn Kane Jacobs, the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. 
They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Magnum TA, and so many others. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, tmptofwrestling.com. And for all you Android users, please hit us up on Google Play or Player FM. And all you iOS users, please check us out on TuneIn Radio, Automatic, Spotify, and now iHeartRadio. Follow along with a two-man power trip as we come to a town near you. Join us in Richmond, Virginia for TMPTCon 2, May 19th at the Holiday Inn with feature guests Kevin Nash, Easy e Eric Bischoff, Shane Douglas, Mark Canterbury, and so many more. So follow along with the two-man power trip as you never know where we may land. And now. Without any further ado, he is a former WCW feature producer known to many as the voice of the NWO. Now he's the host of the Secrets of WCW Monday Nitro podcast. He is none other than Neil Pruitt. Please enjoy. WCW feature producer, and if you don't know his name, you know his voice, because he's indeed called a lot of guys losers, and called them the biggest icon in wrestling, as we welcome in the one and only Neil Pruitt. Neil, thank you for joining the two-man power trip of wrestling. Winners, the two-man power trip of wrestling. Right now. (laughs) New power. Hey, everybody. We appreciate you calling us, and Look forward to uh, what you need to hear from us tonight. We're ready to, we're ready to rock it, and uh, it's it's a pleasure to be on. And uh, tell Shane Douglas I said, "Hey, as soon as you see him, I appreciate it." <laughs> Definitely, uh, we'll pass along the the words to the franchise. But here to talk about your new show tonight. I know you've been doing it for a couple of months. It's called the the Secrets of WCW Nitro Podcast. Uh, obviously, we're going to talk talk about it in great deal detail, but we alluded to the fact that you did the voiceover for the New World Order commercials, the New World Order pay-per-view, and of course, immortalized in the song still, the New World Order little catchphrases, little bumpers that you had in there. Uh, so we're going to dig into it a lot, but talk about this Secrets of WCW Nitro podcast. John and I, being huge old school fans, John literally still being obsessed with WCW, this is right up our alley, and it was such a ray of sunshine to see this one joining the podcast landscape. 
We appreciated a bunch. Um, a gentleman that's an author from New York City, named Guy Evans, WCWNitroBook.com. He was a person that called me up out of the blue just saying, hey, I'd like to have you tell some stories about what happened back in the WCW days. And I'm thinking, eh, you know, I don't know. I guess I'll talk to you. So we talked about an hour and a half. And things went well. And then he said, hey, I want to do me a favor. You know, if you hear hear of a story or you think of a story yourself that you'd want to talk about, why don't you just record it and send it to me? And, you know, I really greatly appreciate it. So I said, all right. So I thought of the story of us running out Alcatraz and having Roddy Piper act as if he stays for a week and prepares himself for a pay-per-view with Hulk Hogan. And I kind of just talked into my recorder and sent it to Guy Evans up in New York City. And he said, you know, you really can tell a story very well. And he said, we need to get this on tape somehow and maybe even do a podcast. And I kind of thought to myself, you know, I don't know. It's just, I don't know if people were interested in this such a long time ago and all that. But after, you know, talking to him a little further and talking to other friends of mine, I was like, why don't I, why not give it a try? I was in a unique position and enabled me to talk to obviously a lot of really great production people and work with some of the best in the world and obviously some of the best wrestling talent there was in the world. So I said, you know, maybe somebody does want to hear about it. So that's how we came up with that. Neil Pruitt's Secrets of WCW Nitro. No, it's uh, it's so cool, and there's uh, so much wrestling nostalgia out there because, uh, you know, we pointed it out on many occasions. The kids who grew up watching it, uh, diehards every week that stuck with it, are now literally consuming wrestling media uh, by, the, <laughs> by the hour every single day. And, and to have something like that from somebody who's on the inside – uh, such as you, is really cool to get the take out there. And we've heard a lot of podcasts with wrestlers inside, but not really from the production point of view. And me being a big production geek, you know, there's a lot of stuff I, I'd love to ask you. But when you started putting the, you know, I guess the quote pen to paper, but really the mouth to recorder and start getting some of those ideas out, were there any stories that you had off the top of your head, like Alcatraz, that you wanted to get out immediately? Or did you kind of sit down and maybe pace yourself and say, all right, maybe if I start with this story, it'll let me believe, you know, remember something else, and it'll lead to some other ones coming out. So what was like, the first one that really helped trigger, maybe outside of Alcatraz, to get these stories back out into the, uh, the media world here? Well, I think just good information about how the NWO kind of started was interesting. And I had done wrestling shows before I got to WCW, actually. So I worked with Joe Hamilton, who was the flame and the assassin. And he and I worked together on several different occasions. But the first time was with Deep South Wrestling. And we had done a small local thing here in Atlanta and had a great time and had pretty decent success, actually, when I first got to Atlanta. So I was a multi-camera director for that show and always kept in touch with each other and had a great time. And we met up again at um, the days of WCW and were friends all along there, had a great relationship. And then we worked together even afterwards for WWE, training people like The Miz, Kofi Kingston and others. So people like MVP and you know I've, I've had a I've had a good run for sure and, and had a good time with some great people. So just spread the word out there and 
make it a little bit unique for for uh, viewers out there and listeners out there to hear these stories and maybe hopefully educate themselves a little bit more about maybe doing their job even. So we try to make it unique by talking, you know, like you said, more about the production side. And we just go from there. And, and it's uh, hopefully an education for somebody. And it's fun for us at the same time. And get to talk to and reconnect with some of my great friends. So that's what it's all about. That's awesome. Yeah, Deep South Wrestling, we've talked about Deep South a lot on the show too. And, oh, wow. uh, you know, Deep South, and it, yeah, Deep South in itself has some pretty damn interesting uh, stories, but for the sake of uh, literally having to stay with this uh, WCW theme, which, you know, we're chomping at the bit to, to ask you some questions about here, you know, WCW at that point in the mid-90s was obviously under the Turner control and having a lot of the capabilities of the Turner Productions and uh, some pretty damn good equipment at your disposal, yeah. it was very easy to get creative. So uh, as somebody, you know, working in production, is being a part of the Turner family uh, something that made your job a lot easier, that if you had an idea, you were able to kind of execute it because you had that, that monster backing you guys? Yeah, I wouldn't say that the monster was so into wrestling at all. Because Tony Schiavone says that, we happen to be a production company that just happens to do wrestling. When in fact, WWE was a wrestling company that did production. So big difference. I didn't think they loved us all that much at any point. They kind of just had us on their roster. So we weren't looked upon as the star child by any means. And we did have though to our disposal, as you say, really great equipment, which made it really a whole lot of fun. Because, yes, you were able to pull off a lot of things because you had a lot of the latest equipment. And most of all, you had some of the greatest operators of that equipment. And that really helped a whole lot because you didn't have to worry about holding their hand saying, okay, make sure your audio levels are not blaring or whatever. You could just guarantee that anything you asked for was delivered. And that was a whole lot of fun, having all those great, production people that were like-minded all in the same place. And if you didn't have that like mind, you're out of there. There are too many people that wanted to line up to do this thing that doesn't have any kind of season that goes, you know, 365 days a year. So we did have a long list of people that wanted to work with us, and I just happened to be one of the lucky ones. It was a real pleasure. Uh, WCW had a really cool look to it because – you knew you were watching WCW, and you knew you were watching the WWF. And if you were just stumbling upon wrestling once, and you saw the WWF, and then you stumbled upon WCW, you knew right off the bat there were two different products out there. And now, was there anything specific to that as to why the shows looked different? Because, I mean, would you say I'm wrong in that, that they, they literally, the look of them, the way they were shot, were two different wrestling products? Well, I think the two-man power trip, they really know they're wrestling. So that's a good thing. <laughs> but yes, it's definitely a different product. You're right. And I think that Vince really didn't pay as much attention to us as we might have thought he wanted, you know, or we might have thought he, he should have or whatever. I really just think he just kind of kept on his game and just kept on doing what he did. And I think, you know, the 83 weeks that was part of uh, WCW history that, we beat them. I think that was one of those things where it's just a matter of time that he got back on top, and he knew that because he's just good at it, 
and you know they have the machine that really works. We were so dysfunctional in many ways that I don't think this without a plan that we could ever overcome them. You know, for years and years, I really don't. I really think it's a totally different place. The operation of how they ran things were just really focused in and marketing specific. They were really just able to take their product, duplicate it many times over, spread it to not only the TV shows that they did, the pay-per-view events and so forth, but also with their merchandise and the ability to just keep that machine running. That was something that they had perfected and still to this day with uh, Triple H, who I really highly admire. He was always such a great guy when he was John Paul Levesque with us, with WCW. He's just the same person now. He just happens to be in a great position. And I wish him all the success in the world. He's a great person. Every time he sees me, he still recognizes me. And Triple H is wonderful. I don't know Stephanie all that well, but every time I talked to Vince McMahon, he was very respectful and a very nice person to me. So it's one of those things where he just kept on doing what he needed to do. And he had a certain style that he liked to follow and still does. And, you know, he's, he's perfected it. I just don't think that you could stop that kind of, you know, attitude. <laughs> I really don't. Not for very long. <laughs> he's a very hands-on guy from what we've seen uh, over the last couple of years is, uh, his role has grown, his influence has grown, and he's really bringing a lot of elements of old-school wrestling down to the NXT product. And I know as like a diehard WWE fan would say that they hope that that kind of makes its way to the, uh, the WWE television product. But, hey, I mean, that could go to the fact that uh, a lot of people kind of glance over the fact that Triple H was a WCW guy. He was brought into WCW as his first big break. And I'm sure that's another topic that you could have for the podcast is that you know, there's a lot of people who passed through WCW, albeit maybe for a cup of coffee, that went on to have some pretty damn big success in the wrestling business. Oh, man, I could just go on a list and run them down. There's one thing I used to do is I had some time when we were doing some of our TV tapings or some of the wrestling shows that we did at Center Stage especially, I had time to sit up in the stands and talk to some of these superstars that would eventually go on to do great things at WWE. And they are just really good at taking a personality and putting whatever magic on them they can, coming out you know, on the other end being a superstar. So there's some kind of formula that they have figured out that does well. And I think one of it is the way that they were able to control the wrestler because you got to imagine, okay, you have people that are big and athletic, and having been in sports, I know, my brothers and I, we all played sports in high school, so we understand this whole situation. These guys, a lot of them are babies since they're like seventh grade. So the red carpet is rolled out for them because they happen to be able to throw a ball through a hoop or very far down the field or whatever, and they are babies. Just be honest, they're babies. And when they get to a situation where they can take advantage of something, where maybe they get a lot of money and they don't have to work all that hard, well, like anybody, they're going to take advantage of it. Well, I really don't think they can at WWE because the way they have their contracts situated, you better perform or you're going to be gone and the next person is going to take your place. 
And Turner is one of those places where, you know, they still got to follow the rules as far as how people are treated as an employee and not like an independent contractor. So that is a difference right there that makes it a lot easier for success up in Connecticut as compared to what it was in Atlanta. So that has a, that has a factor involved too, I think. Yeah, and, you know, just like talking about the TV product, there's a lot of uh, differences between the two organizations uh, that were vastly showing as the 90s developed. And WCW had a, had a way about them, whether or not it helped or hurt the business overall, not just WCW business, but the wrestling business, but they were treated like two different companies uh, by the way they operated. Now, I mean, I guess kind of piggybacking off of that question about missed talent or talent that passed through. Another funny thing that, again, it could be another podcast topic is the fact that WCW had so many guys on their talent roster at, at a given time. And we always kind of chuckled at it every year during World War III. We'd see the 60 guys fill up those rings, and we'd see some random people that you'd find out are on the payroll. Now, is that, yet again, is that another topic that for your podcast – you're looking to kind of explore that WCW at one point was almost like a haven for a who's who of, of talent that may not have been on TV for six, seven, eight months at a time. Yeah, I'm not sure who's dealing with some of those contracts. Like, you know, Randy Savage's brother, he worked for us forever, and I don't know that I ever met him one time. <laughs> I was pretty highly involved. So there was a lot of people on the roster. And unfortunately, I think it came to a situation where without knowing what was going to happen from one week to the next, they just kept on shipping people all over the place. And it's like a box of crayons, you know. What do you need? You need crayons, you need 16, or do you need a 64-pack? You know, it just happened to be the 64-pack or the 128-pack that we carried around. And it made it a little bit easier, I think, for people just to be plugged in. But you're right, tag on, there's a lot of dead weight. And that's never good. We could have used a lot of production people instead of paying some of those people that were never on TV to wrestle, for sure. That would have been <laughs> very helpful. Hey, you hand them a boom mic, and now they're uh, now they're a part of the production team. So sometimes uh, they can right. be a little more useful. But in, is there <laughs> one guy you remember that you didn't even know he was under contract or you saw him floating around being like, what the heck is this guy doing here? And then it turns out he's a part of the family. Yeah, Randy Savage's brother, All right? Um, what is his name? Uh, um, oh, uh, Leaping Lady Popo. Popo. Yeah, Lady Popo, yeah. I never really saw him. <laughs> you know? But I had heard that he was on contract for a while. So Even though I loved Randy to death, he was great to work with. He's just one of my favorites for sure. He would go, uh, yeah, brother, give me some verbiage, man. I trust you, okay? So there goes my invitation. I don't have to work <laughs> with my voice a little bit raspier than normal. Or not, but yeah, Randy was great to work with. But Angelo, uh, I mean, Lenny Poffo was one of them, yes. And I can't recall many others. We were kind of too busy anyway to worry about it. But we just kind of had to keep our nose on the grindstone and keep going, you know. We had more work piled up in front of us. But it was a great time in my life, and I just had such a good time. And I'm so glad you're revitalizing it a little bit, you know, letting us old guys sit here and talk about the war stories, you know, that we had back then because. I had a lot of great memories of friends I worked with, and hopefully we'll be able to educate some people in the meantime on Neil Pruitt's secrets of WCW Nitro. Absolutely. So where did you see the turn? Now, obviously, we all point at the NWO, and we know that that's 
the big historical impact. But from the back end, you know, was it the lead into the NWO? Was it during the execution of the NWO? But where did you personally see the turn coming for the company overall? I don't know. I think the trips to Disney really helped a lot. I mean, it kind of brought us to an international stage. I mean, you got to figure, not that long ago, it was a company out of North Carolina. It was kind of a small company, really. And, you know, really had marginal success. But then the Superstation on Channel 17 was a real big boost and enabled people like Rick Flair to, you know, become internationally known. And there's Abisco and several others. I mean, the Four Horsemen. I mean, you could just name so many people that became famous out of a small kind of, uh, I don't know, I guess a TV studio. And then to, you know, go into uh, mid-market arenas and then to big arenas to, you know, working at Disney and going to do some international tours, not anything like the WWE, but, you know, some, some small tours. So I think the Disney thing really did, even though it probably cost a little bit of money, I think it really did bring us all up a level. I think the production people were able to work together. I remember during the 1996 Summer Olympic Games in Atlanta, I didn't think we were going to be able to get out our shows. And they said the traffic's going to be so bad. There's no way you can make it to CNN Center. So therefore, more than likely, the shows are not going to get done. So we're worried about that. So we're going to take absolutely every production person and send them down to Disney and have them stay there for 10 weeks or whatever it was. Although it was a good time, it was unfortunate that we missed the Olympics and came to our own hometown. Luckily, Mm -hmm. my mom and dad, they were still vibrant at the time, and they were able to see, like, the dream team, and they saw uh, Kerry, whatever her name was, uh, win the gold medal and the gymnastics and all that. But I think it brought us closer together as far as a team, and that really propelled us a bit. So there were, like, a perfect storm-type situation, I think, that came together. And that's what got our momentum going. So I'd say Disney was a big turn for us, no doubt. Yeah, the Disney shows, uh, obviously huge. And, of course, uh, helping with the lead-in of uh, the arrival of Hulk Hogan, which obviously, you know, a huge, huge bump for the company. Uh, and an out-of-nowhere uh, move that I don't think a lot of people really expected, uh, thinking that Hogan was so dedicated to uh, WWF and Vince McMahon. And then, you know, it just so happens he's filming a, a television show at MGM, and uh, boom, now you guys land the Hulkster. So it was almost like the perfect storm, but of course it's like adding Babe Ruth to your baseball team. It's never going to hurt, and obviously the uh, he is the Babe Ruth of professional wrestling and brought a lot of eyeballs to uh, the place where the big boys play. Exactly, with him and then obviously Rick Flair's talent, I mean, he was able to collect a big paycheck, of course, but still yet work with Hulk, you know, to make it work for the whole company. And that was a big thing to be involved with. And I was so lucky to be able to build so many of the video packages that were shown for that. And also I was fortunate enough to direct Ted Turner, of course, doing, doing the signing contract signing for Bash the Beach. And I remember that very well, where we had Ted in the long table with the WCW logo in front of him, and and we had um, Ric Flair on the left-hand side, and um, 
we had Hulk Hogan on the right. So it was fun to be involved in that segment, you know, part of wrestling history. Probably maybe no bigger matches will ever take place. So that was, I mean, when you get the best in the business to join your company, no matter what, that's going to bring you up a notch. And I think it really brought WCW much closer to the level of WWE. It was great. And that was a and that was a big feather in the cap of Eric Bischoff at the time to get Hogan and get that big match because when the WWF tried to put that match together in the early 90s, it flopped. But for whatever reason, it worked really well in WCW. You think that was a huge boost as well, that not only were they able to have the match, but it was able to come off so successfully? I agree. I mean, I don't know if, why it really worked for us. I guess the momentum just happened to be right there and it was the right place to right time kind of thing. And the pageantry at which Hogan came in, I thought was very helpful. The little parade that they had and we staged Disney was also a very nice touch. I know on Neil Peart's secrets of WCW Nitro, we're going to speak with Dan Bynum, who is the director for WCW Saturday night and many clash of the champions. And we're going to talk to him eventually about that whole situation and how that all went down and what he was involved with in doing those productions. So, yeah, it just happened to be what we needed at the time, too, to bring us up a notch, and it did, and it worked well. And I have got to give all the respect in the world to Eric Bischoff being able to pull that off, how he was able to talk to him and get him to sign. I'm sure it was a big wad of money, which probably eventually some of a downfall for us in the end. But, hey, it did give us a huge boost and put us on the world stage. It was cool. It was great to work with Hulk. He was terrific to work with. The great thing about him, as compared to other maybe junior wrestlers especially, is my job was often to do things like many movies. So if you recall the time when Ric Flair got beat up in the field with all the helicopters swirling around him and the, the Hummers driving by him and then just all the NWO really beating stuffing out of Flair. I was able to work with Hulk because I had worked with Flair going down in the limousine and we had uh, done those segments driving from someplace around Tampa to the Tampa area. And the friend that was on our show a few times, Jason Douglas, who was a great producer, he did a lot of setup work to that, and we had just really some major players involved, Keith Mitchell and Phil um, Tinsley, the camera person I often speak of. We had a lot of people involved in that shoot, but when I worked with Hogan, I had to do a deal where we had a camera that was the main camera inside the limousine, but then he would eventually work his way outside, and we had to act as if we had more than one camera, and Hogan had to come around the limousine and kind of do his scene over again while all this chaos was going around. Well, I was easily able to talk to Hulk about how we're going to shoot this and say, Hulk, okay, do you remember how you came around and you looked in the window and you peeked in and you said, this ain't about you, and you looked at the other guys and you said, skedaddle or whatever he said? I, he said, yeah. I said, well, you know, go back about you know 30 seconds of time and do that over again for me because I'm going to get it from the over-the-shoulder shot, and we're going to edit that together and make it look like it happened all one time. So he was understanding of how the movie business works and how you do it with one camera. 
and how you retrace your steps a little bit to make it all work out and did it to perfection. And he was so easy to work with because he had been in so many movies. He had some of the other young guys that I worked with. They would do stuff like, well, why do you want me to do that? Well, don't ask me why you want to do it. We just need you to do it. Let's just get it over with keep on going. So he had already been trained. Now, I'm not saying any of his moves were major blockbusters, but he knew the techniques that were needed to be used, and we capitalized on that. And he was a blast to work with with me. I thought he was a terrific professional, as well as, as, well as Eric Bischoff was. And it worked out. And it was a lot of fun. And I didn't have always the best times with Hall and Nash doing the MWO things. But, you know, we worked it out. And hopefully somebody got some enjoyment out of it. It seems that we're still talking about it today. So it must have made an impact. Oh, huge, huge impact. And I feel like when Hogan turned heel, if you will, and joined the NWO, that was something that really, really turned the tide for WCW. And that was one of those water cooler moments where everyone and their mother and father and grandpa, everyone was <laughs> saying, can't believe Hogan turned, you know, turned bad. I can't believe it. Was that kind of the moment you were like, wow, we're on something here. This NWO thing is hitting off. You know, you got to create the logo. Um, they're going to be the quote unquote cool heels. Did you really feel, you know, a launching pad at that point? Well, without a doubt, that's kind of just kind of, you know, it's taking a space shuttle and throwing it, you know, in, into space and it really being a very successful mission. It was really interesting to see just how much the crowd hated that. And wow, it was huge just to watch it all go down. I was sitting in the truck next to Craig Leathers and going like, wow, this is amazing. You know, this really did work. And I wasn't really part of orchestrating that, but obviously the branding on the NWO was probably my baby and probably my biggest contribution to the wrestling business. And working with such superstars like that, you know they're going to make something out of it because they're going to entertain people no matter what they're doing. So it was a fun time. And the launch, yes, to bring in the third man, even though third man to DiBiase showed up, but to bring in Hogan, yeah, that, that made it big. And I think the techniques that we used when we did the NWO really controlled that whole situation. So it enabled us to edit, along with Kemper Rogers, who was our senior editor. He was just a terrific person that was able to really make something look great. He was the guy that's involved with all the clicks and all the different um, film scratches that went over top of the NWO footage and all that. And he and I worked together on how to make it look so much chaotic. He could tell a story. And and um, fortunately, I was able to add an element that I thought would be interesting, which was to hand my camera to Scott Hall and say, hey, Scott, you know, go ahead and videotape the other guys while you're talking in this interview. And we can show the fans kind of what it looks like behind the scenes and kind of feel like really they're part of the interview. And I think that really had a lot to bring the connection to the people and it got them inside of what it does really look like and how it feels to be a person that's on the stage and talking about their next match. And I think that was really a really successful part of the NWO. So it all worked out. And Eric Bischoff and Kevin Sullivan and Craig Leathers and um, Keith Mitchell, they just let us do what we needed to do. And they didn't, 
ask a whole lot of questions. They trusted us, and that was a big deal for us because that enabled us to get as creative as we possibly could and try something new. And it was it was uh, the best thing for a creative. Just let them go and have at it. <laughs> and we did. We didn't spend too much money, I don't think. <laughs> we made it work. <laughs> NWO, think about it, unbelievable. It's the black and white. It was cool. It was different. It was unique. It was something special. It was something that, you know, hadn't really been seen before. It was just so creatively you done. <laughs> exactly. Your voiceovers uh, were, were excellent. It was just one of those things where, you know, it's 20, 20 years later now, and it's still the greatest thing probably ever in the history of the wrestling business. I know people <laughs> want to say, oh, uh, Austin McMahon. Austin McMahon kind of a spinoff of what the NWO was doing with the wrestlers versus the management. So I got to say NWO is the thing that is probably the greatest thing ever in the history of the wrestling business. I don't know if you will agree or, or disagree with that. Oh, you're too kind, man. I really appreciate it. But I got to tell you, it's not really something new, I wouldn't say. So Judy Hamilton and I had this talk about that whole deal and what went down. Really, that kind of taking over and coming in from a different territory, let's say, happened. Actually, it reoccurred many times in wrestling where people would come in from a different territory and try to take over and it's one of those reoccurring themes where are they going to be able to stand, you know, stand their ground? Are they going to get overrun? Or so I wouldn't say it was brand new. I would say it was definitely different looking, and it was something that was probably the we did it the best way we could. But to have outsiders come in and try to take over an organization, I wouldn't say it was brand new, but it was really well done and. You know, you had some really top people that came from a great organization. They were able to make it look as if the WWF, WWE, whatever you want to say, was coming down to take over with us. So I just think it was the right way they went about it, not really acting as if they were part of WCW at all, but in fact maybe even suggesting that it might be WWE doing it. And that little suspension of disbelief, I guess Jody would say, he would say you have to have an element in sincerity in everything you did, but it was a suspension of belief, and it worked real well. And I just think it might have been somewhat perfected. That's why it worked. Worked so well and was so cool. One thing that was probably didn't work out so well or was almost strange in a certain aspect was NWO sold out was the NWO pay-per-view. And I think that probably had to do with where it was held in, in Iowa of all places. Do you feel like the NWO sold out was a little bit of a flop or it could have been done a little bit better? Oh, it was a huge flop. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the, the whole Miss NWO and, the band that was there, and uh, I felt sorry for the announcer young guy that was taxed with having to talk to people, you know, that were participants in that Miss NWO contest. That was so poorly produced in general. I'm not sure how it all went down. That's the thing. I mean, I was there. I was involved, but I don't remember 
I guess because I was so busy on doing the open and some of the things like that that really didn't work out either with Hall, Bash, and Hogan in three different panels. That was quite a feat of production to be able to pull that off and to be able to have three screens up in the rafters with the information flying from one screen to another. Kemper Rogers fortunately figured that out and how to do all that back in the day with the Avid, which is a editing production kind of platform on the computer. And he was able to figure out how to make that all work along with Ernie Watts. Dr. Watts was one of the greatest TV engineers and is still alive and well today, doing very well, making great television across the world. But it was a huge flop. And I just think a lot of those ideas were really not planned out very well. It really wasn't done in a professional production type standpoint. I think it seemed like it was just a bunch of ideas that may have been drawn out on the napkin, but they weren't really executed very well at all. And it was a big flop, I thought. But being in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, I'm not sure that that affected it a whole lot. I guess you could have it just about anywhere. But I think it's hard to see a heel-type company that's why, even though I would have been highly involved with a new NWO show, had they done that with something instead of, like, say, Thunder, I'm sure I'd have been really cast into a much larger production role, even. And I was lucky enough to be in a pretty decent position anyway. But to have and sustain a heel-type big pay-per-view, it's not a even playing ground. That's a tough thing just to go into that and even try to pull that off. It's like, why do the wrestlers even show up if they know they're automatically going to get cheated like crazy? But you know what? It gave me a great opportunity to rag on my friends, the Steiner brothers. That was fun. <laughs> because me being from Ohio and them being from Michigan, it's always a good time to get back at them a little bit. <laughs> so I had that going for me, which is nice. Now, whose idea was it as far as, you know, the, the voiceover role and being the voice of the NWO and the loser and the biggest icon in wrestling and the following announcement? I mean, all that awesome stuff. Whose idea was that? Well, when you're trying to start up a brand like the NWO, make it look different and bring something that wasn't seen many times over, we had to really think about different means. And different means something that where the voiceover is unusual, you might say. And the story there goes that I told Craig Levins, I said, look, I really don't think we should have a announcer, one of our announcers especially, be the announcer of the NWO at all. It's just not going to work. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. I know we have them on the payroll, but we need something to be different. And he goes, yeah, I agree. And I had heard this gentleman who has now passed. He was a guy that did all the VO promo work for 99X in Atlanta. He had a very raspy voice. It just sounded very unusual. It was a group of people that played kind of 
on the edge music, and it was a great station. And Jimmy Barron, who was a gentleman that was on that morning show, he was often later did work with us at WCW and did a fine job. He was part of that crew, and the voice over guy, like I said, 99X. I really liked that. So I said, Craig, there's this guy that's on 99X, and I really like his voice the way it sounds. I said, I really think we ought to use him. I really do. He goes, what does it sound like? So I went, 99X. Like that. He goes, why don't you do it? I said, all right. (laughs) I will. (laughs) And that's about as far as the conversation went. So that's how I ended up being the voice of the NWO. And obviously it was very helpful helpful for me as a producer because I was always around to do it, always willing to do it, always wanting to do it. And I knew to a certain degree if I did a good job when I did it. So that's how the NWO voice came around. And I I threw out the idea when we were doing the NWO sold out thing that we needed to do something sarcastic and snarky when the wrestlers were coming down the aisle and I was able to write most of those along with Kemper Rogers and it was unusual and and, you know that's weird because a lot of people really remember those entrances and when I went loser (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. so it was fun it was strange that all the work you do and all the hours you put in and sometimes something as simple as just being a smart aleck and my son's name's Alec Poet, and he is a smart Alec, that we're able to impact somebody just by doing some goofy announcements <laughs> coming down the aisle. And it was funny because when I saw the two Michigan dog face mutts, the Steiner <laughs> brothers, I saw them <laughs> when I saw them walking down the aisle, one of the highlights is to see Scotty <laughs> got a Jerk his neck around like, Who the hell is that voice <laughs> over the announcement calling us that? That was funny. And when I talked to Scott, because he <laughs> graciously said that he would be on Neil Pruitt's Secrets of WCW Nitro, I'm going to ask him about that very day because I still remember the look on his face when we did it. It was hysterical. And man, when you get Big Papa Pump and you're able to <laughs> really, um, you know, I guess uh, pull his chain a little bit. <laughs> That's doing something. It's a scary moment, I gotta say. <laughs> but it is it is very entertaining. And believe me, I did tell the story about when the Signer brothers were able to get me back and let me know if you need to hear about that sometime. Oh, I'd love to hear about that. What did uh what did they do to get get you back? So there's a gentleman that really can tell the story because he was there and saw it. He used to run all the graphics for us that would show up on the screen, like, say, the lower thirds that would come up and say, mm-hmm. Harlem Heat with Mr. Sherry. That's another story. Or it would say, like, live from Chattanooga, Tennessee, or whatever. Bill Reynolds, great friend, still connect with him today. He was there and saw this. So we're, I think, darn, I'm thinking we're in Wyoming or somewhere, and he even told me, I, I, should, I should write this down. But we're at this amusement park. So here, here's how it all went down. There was a young kid that was a big wrestling fan. 
and his dad owned this amusement park. So the word got spread backstage. You know, the fastest way back then to get the information around was not email and not the postal service. It was wrestler mail. So you tell one wrestler and they'll spread it all over the building. So within minutes, we knew that after we were done with that, I believe it was a nitro, we were able to go out to this place that had been opened back up again, this amusement park, and have free reign of the place. Can you imagine? So all of us production people and all the wrestlers, and that's it. And we could do whatever we wanted. (laughs) So we took full well advantage of that. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, I was paired up with the Steiner brothers, and we got on this slick go-kart track. So the slick track, which I was not familiar with until that day, was a deal where the tires were able to slide very easily, and you just kind of able to do uh, the drifting, I guess, what you call it. And it was a real fun little go-kart ride. Well, it was fun for a while until I spun out and went the wrong direction. And then I looked to my right, and I see these two 250-pound-plus monsters from Michigan. That's the state north of Ohio. <laughs> that killer look and the devil look in their eye, and they're barreling right for me as fast as they possibly can. Bulldozers. And they hit the side of my car, and they hit it so hard at the exact same time. They almost flipped my car completely over. I mean, it was crazy. And, man, my neck was so sore for about a week. I barely survived that car crash. It was intentional for those crazy Steiner brothers. So it probably didn't pay for me to rip them backstage when (laughs) I knew they couldn't fight me. But it was fun anyway, and I survived it, so it's all good. Those two are pretty dangerous, and you hear a lot of backstage stories about them beating a lot of people up, so... Maybe you got even lucky getting into that little mini go-kart crash. Exactly, yeah. But they were, they were a lot of fun. We always had a good time with them. And that, that's just a lot of the interviews backstage, some of the people that we got to hear about and see people like Cactus Jack, Dude, uh, Mick Foley, whatever you want to call him, come into the interview room and just take control and be so eloquent behind the camera and tell so many great stories. That was some wonderful times when he'd come to the door. And Jack or Mick was such one of those guys that really wanted to make everything right. He would stay. He goes, hey, you know, if you're against all mine, you know, I'd like to stay here and do some, you know, extra work and do some interviews or whatever. Just, you know, I need to practice. We're thinking thinking to ourselves, guy doesn't need to practice at all. He's awesome. But, hey, we want to be entertained. He wants to practice. We're there. We're available. We want to help anybody we can. And just to hear him tell some of the tales that he would just spit out off the top of his head was just amazing. He just had a gift for language. And to work with people like that was just just a real thrill. And fortunately, I was in his book, Have a Nice Day. So thanks, Mick, for putting me in there. And we had a real fun time in the interview room sometimes. And sometimes it was just... Bill Tinsley, me, and the microphone and camera. So those are some great memories, and as well as times we had with 
um, Bobby the Brain Heenan and Bean Gene Okerlund doing leads where they would screw them up and we'd be maybe 30 seconds in. And they'd talk for another minute just to entertain us in the, in the room. They knew that they weren't going to use that take, but that's the kind of people I got to work with back then. And not too many people in TV production can say they had that much fun and get paid for it. I mean, you hmm. never get that close, I don't think, to sports people. You know, you really don't. But the interaction that we had with the wrestlers made it so much more special because the tie-ins that we had, like at, at Disney, being able to sit around the pool and actually talk to them about their strategies. And on Neil Pruitt's Secrets of WCW Nitro, we had Tim Snyder, Snake, who was the person that did so many of the great entrances with a steady cam with say Goldberg going around the whole building and Las Vegas for Halloween Havoc and doing that super long entrance. So we get to really connect with these guys and gals that, you know, were on international television and work as a team to make it all good. And that was the joy. That was the, one of the greatest things about it. You know, we mentioned uh, the Hulkster coming down and that being obviously a huge move, but I think one of the most underrated moves that uh, you really could pinpoint is both the uh, arrival of Bobby Heenan and Mean Gene because not only are they bringing instant credibility to the broadcast from the announcer point of view, but you have two guys that have also been producers and worked backstage and have basically been a part of, up to that point, the biggest boom in professional wrestling. So adding those two guys, so if Hulk Hogan's on the Babe Ruth uh, part of the roster, you basically have a leadoff man and a number two hitter in Bobby Heen and, and Mean Gene Oakland. So did they help with that uh, integration and the staff, uh, the production staff, with what they brought to the table too? Well, I think at WWE they're on a different playing field altogether. I think the, as I mentioned earlier, the well-oiled machine that they had up there, and the way just kind of they just kind of went about business, I think was so much different, and especially for Bobby, because I think Bobby's one of those type people where he was a genius and loved working with him, one of the most gifted comedic minds. I had spoken with Scott Hudson on our show and talked about how much he reminded me of W.C. Fields and a lot of the antics that he would pull and the way he would do kind of almost vaudevillian type stuff. <clears throat> Excuse me, trying to get over cold here. But I think that Bobby kind of needs to be spoon-fed just a little bit. So he kind of liked things done his way and was very particular and maybe wasn't catered to at WCW quite as much as he was at WWE. So, you know, oftentimes you'll see at the end of movies, people that basically follow people around, like I think they're handlers in the food business. But they're people just check on the stars and make sure everything's good. Well, we really didn't have enough production staff to be able to do that. And I think the size and the organization of production was so much different. I think WCW was working on a shoestring. And WWE had a lot of people that they threw at the problem. And they had enough people to make it, you know, make it right. And we didn't oftentimes. So I think it was totally different for Bobby. I think Gene was able to roll with a little bit easier 
because I think his role is a little bit more different than Bobby's. He would just show up every now and then and do an interview, which he was so genius at doing. But he wasn't totally immersed like Bobby was. Bobby was put on a situation where he knew how to do it right, and he wanted to do it right, but he just wasn't given an opportunity. And what I mean there is, I think at WWE, with the planning that they have and the way that they do their productions down to the one move at a time, I think when you give somebody like Bobby a script and don't try to kayfabe him, don't try to swerve him, don't just let him act naturally the way he would as the character Bobby the Brain Eaton and just let it go from there. I think Bobby had a difficult time not knowing what the plan was going to be and just try to be reactionary. Now, I think a lot of the people that we had as announcers, whether it be Tony Schiavone, Mike Tanay, Jim Ross, whoever, they were able to roll with it. They were able to make something out of nothing. But that wasn't so easy for Bobby the Brain. I think he wanted to think about it more in advance and kind of have somewhat of a plan on what to do. And it was it was tough for him. And I know if you go back and listen to any of the old interviews that were done with Bobby, I think you would hear that in his voice, that he really didn't appreciate the time he worked with WCW just because of the shoestring budget and lack of staff compared to the big monster up there in Connecticut. I think it was a lot different for him. And it probably wasn't a great time, even though it was a good paycheck. Very true. And you mentioned Mike today, and I know you did some filming with him when he did those awesome Mexico specials, you know, where, he, <laughs> where he'd basically go down there and you learn a little bit more about the culture and the wrestlers and the masks. Was that something that mm-hmm. was fun for you? Oh, that was a blast. I loved it. To be able to go to Mexico and just see how the mask of us masks are part of their tradition and part of their culture was just it was um, an eye-opener for me. I had no idea that that's why all the masks were worn by the luchadores. And I am a big fan of Latino culture in general. I think it's very interesting. I've always had a great time in every country I've ever been that uh, has Latinos there. And it was a real joy that people that we did the interviews with and we worked with and Apollo Dantes, who drove us around everywhere, and meeting Hijo del Santo, Negro Casas, Lee Smarts, uh, I don't know if it's junior or senior, you know, the Silver Kings, everybody, Ray Mendoza. That was a great time, and that was probably one of my favorite shoots I've ever had. I'd, I hope, hopefully, you'll be able to be educated a little bit about the mass down there. Um, Ray Mysterio was a young guy at the time, very young. He asked me at one point, you know, what do you think about me losing my mask? I said, don't do it. It's a crazy move. Obviously, he did it anyway, but and he was able to get it back when he went to WWE. But I I had a really good time. That was one of the best shoots I think I was ever on. Mike Tanay was in his heyday. He was very educated, and I thought brought a lot of insight to our announcer booth. And really 
did his best and was always prepared and ready to go and willing to do whatever's needed. And he was very educated about that whole thing. And I think that, that brought us up a notch, too. It, it changed the face of wrestling for sure. Because before then, Vince oftentimes, having been a bodybuilder, he was into that kind of look, and that's about it for a while there. You know, people like the Ultimate Warrior would be ultimately, you know, put on top. And I don't think that was very interesting oftentimes with the fans. I think it's much more interesting when you have various body types and people that are unusual go out there instead of everybody looking like they're from the movie 300. But um, I think that was that was something that Vince has kind of always pushed, but I always like the little bit unusual type person. So I don't know. That's uh, Mike really, he brought a different perspective to the announce booth and one that was obviously highly educated on what the Mexican wrestling were all about and would eventually lead me to producing something in the truck for the luchadores in L.A. that I never thought I was going to get the opportunity to do, which I at the time thought was a super flop. <laughs> but here about, I don't know, probably 10 years ago, I heard it was a very important pay-per-view. And who knows? <laughs> something that you thought might not have been all that great turned out to be something that people really like to watch. So you never know about the wrestling business. It's crazy. Sometimes you have your hits and your misses, and sometimes you don't even know which is which. <laughs> it's, it's a wild world. That is a, is a great point. And with you and and getting into WCW, I was like kind of curious. How did you like? When did you get into WCW? How did you get in? Kind of who did you work under, and who actually hired you and brought you into the company? Well, I ended up working under the best boss you could ever have, Keith Mitchell. Keith Mitchell was in charge of production. He was the person told who to go where when. And was at the time, he was Craig Leather's boss. He controlled all the shoots that we had on location, all the people that were at the events to be able to be the camera people or the tape operators or directors or whatever. And at the time, I had directed a nightly sports show when I was 25. And worked with the local interview people like Vince Dooley and Dennis Scott, who's you know was an NBA superstar. It was a as it was at Georgia Tech at the time. Anytime many of the Braves um, competitors would come into town, whether it be Tommy Lasorda, Pete Rose, or whoever, I worked on that kind of show. So I had had exposure to major sports people before I got to WCW, and before the sports show even, when I first got to Atlanta after graduating from college, Bowling Green State University in Northeast Ohio, I came down and, like I mentioned, worked with Cody Hamilton on a wrestling show called Deep South. So I had already known about the wrestling at Turner, but during that sports show, I actually worked with a guy named Chris Huber, who was a producer at WCW later. And asked me if I wanted to do some work being an audio person at the interview room, you know, for Turner's Wrestling. I said, sure, I'd love to do it. 
So I went on to do that. Um, I had also, also directed a show called Superstars of Wrestling with Joe Petticino and Bonnie Blackstone. So I, I was familiar with the wrestling business and really not intimidated by the superstars that were behind, you know, they were in front of the camera. So I think it really worked out for me because I kind of knew how to deal with those type people. And I really was attracted to working with a big company like Turner. So that's kind of how I got into it was through Chris Huber and working with Keith Mitchell and being in the interview room. But I said, you know, look, I really am a package producer. That's what I do. I do little mini movies and I do interviews and music videos and things like that because we did some crazy stuff on that sports show because we were able to do pretty much whatever we wanted. So I had been fortunate to work with a creative sports person who did stuff really off the wall. So that worked out perfectly for wrestling. So once I actually did do a segment for the 1-900 number where the phone had so much information and it kept growing and growing and exploded, they kind of liked that idea and my execution of it. And from then on, I became a feature producer. And a gentleman had had left the company, and I just kind of filled in his position. So that's how I got started in all of it and had a great run for a long time. And to this day, it was one of my most fun jobs I ever had. And I remember the time very well, and you know it was uh, it was something I'll never forget. And it was, you know, it was certainly a great education <laughs> in many ways. So that's how I got started. Awesome, you know, history you had in the wrestling business. Obviously, superstars of wrestling to Deep South with with Jody Hamilton, WCW. I mean, it's such a great run, and you work with so many different you know, personalities and names. And WCW had, you know, an all-star team of, of talent with, you know, the Stings of the World, the DDPs, the SIDS, and you cover a lot of the other guys on your show, which I think is cool. Like you'll hear about Ernest Miller and Glacier and different guys. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. kind of a cool aspect of it? You you can talk about things that other people don't necessarily know about? I think it is because <clears throat> really one of the, greatest things had nothing to do with my talents at all. But it had everything to do with the crews that I worked with. There's no way I could have pulled off any of the stuff that we did anywhere. And we knew that. And hopefully they knew that. Was the people that I worked with on the production staff and the crews that were involved were just some of the best in the world and surely had the greatest attitudes. So I have to give all the credit to other people, not myself. I mean, if I wouldn't have had those people wanting to do whatever it takes, whenever, that would have never been a success. And I owe all the credit to them because they made it happen, really. And it was their talent that they used. And I let them use it. I mean, maybe that's part of my success is I let them do what they did best. And I capitalized on it. And I just happened to be, you know, like a good coach. I mean, when you have a great coach, he's able to take really good players and put them together and make it all work. And that's kind of what I consider myself really as a producer when I work with WCW or any time that I work with WWE or with Deep South Wrestling or whatever. 
I just let people that had a passion to do what they did and were good at it go. I just let them do what they needed to do because they're the expert. I'm not. I kind of almost to a certain degree got to follow their lead and ask their opinions and see what they think and leave it wide open and try to not let my ego get in the way of it all. Sometimes I feel as if my career had been a little bit, I was a little bit of a micromanager on some of the stuff, and I probably should have let some of the editors kind of go off on their own direction, which would have been great. It's just something I wasn't real comfortable with, but probably should have in the past. But every time I've let people do what they do well and let them excel and give them the credit for it, I can think of so many ideas. I'm an ideas person. I can always think of something. And I think fairly interesting because I'm an out-of-the-box thinker. But I don't have to take the credit. And I think a lot of the, you know, production, you gotta got to pay attention to what everybody else is thinking about and talking about and what their buzz is. And go ahead and add that to the mix. Because then if you do, they'll come up with another good idea because they, they saw that you used it one before, and the word gets around. Trust me on that. When you start using people's talents, all those people, they talk when you're not around. And they say, man, you know, that, that person, they're really good to work with because they actually listen to me and, you know, they use my skills. And then now it creates a buzz and an atmosphere that when you walk in there, you know you're going to kick some butt because these people are already to work with you and for you and at their top of their game. And they're not just showing up for work now. They're a team that just nails it. And that's what we were. With the minimal staff that we had, we were able to pull off some great things, but that comes from the top down. I mean, you have to have people like Keith Mitchell and like Craig Leathers and Eric Bischoff to a certain degree. You have to have those type people and David Crockett to let people do what they can do and just tear it up because we don't, as creators, we just don't show up for work. We show up for a lifestyle that we get to show off what we can make up. <laughs> that is fun. You can't ask for anything better. I was lucky, real lucky. I always was a bigger fan of WCW than WWF. I don't know, something about it, especially um, guys like Sting and Flyer, the Horsemen, and then when Hogan came over at the NWO, it was just something about it I always liked better. Could be the production value. You know, the way you guys shot was a little bit different. Um, sometimes, you know, you'd have the cameraman literally – on top of the apron, if you will, on that little uh, wooden box, which was a different shot with a different viewpoint. Were you thinking of, when you were kind of producing and doing things, were you thinking of WWF at all and being different, or were you just kind of rolling with the punches and doing your own thing? You know, I've been asked that many times. Were we thinking of WWF, WWE? Not really that much. We just didn't have time. We just kind of had to do our own thing and, and get it going and try to figure out day-to-day what we think our fans might enjoy. And that's really it. And I think some of the issues that they've had at WWE have been they're super controlled. I don't know if that's all that good. And you give somebody exact lines to go out and talk about where you got to say this here and you got to say that there. They're not really actors. <clears throat> I think you got to give them a general outline, yes. But to give them every line, it just doesn't work. It just To me, it's, it comes off as like a bad movie or camp. I'm not camp. Camp's 
a different style, which I really enjoy, but it's, it just uh, takes the realism out of all of it. <clears throat> because you can't put exact words into people's mouths. You can give them talking points and ideas on what they're supposed to say. But they have to deep down want to make their character part of them. Because let's go back to the element of sincerity part. You can't be too, too far from your own character. What I always try to tell young guys coming in, I'd say, figure out what person you really are or who you think you are or who you enjoy being and just blow that up and take it as far as you possibly can. And then a producer or director can dial you back. But you've got to be willing to really take all of these different um, patterns of speech or the way you move your head or your eyes or however you do whatever and just make it as unusual as possible and make it as grand as possible. And that's not easy for some people because it takes them way out of their comfort zone. So I think the best characters are the people that are most like who they really are, like somebody like Ric Flair. He is Ric Flair. So the legend says. <laughs> but I, I got to say, you know, talking about characters – being close to life. Now, this is just one thing before uh, John takes it the rest of the way here. That we got to ask. We just had on Jeff Farmer not too long ago, and we talked about the mm-hmm. creation of the NWO Sting. And obviously, you know, at that point, it was the genesis for the change in Steve Borden Sting, turning him from the flashy, colorful man called Sting into the Crow Sting. But Jeff Farmer Mm -hmm. talked about the creation being he was brought in, they did prosthetics, they gave him contacts, they wanted him to look exactly like Steve Borden as Sting, Mm -hmm. but afterwards kind of abandoned that, just went with the face paint, and obviously the rest they say is history. But what do you remember about the creation of the NWO Sting, and obviously in the execution, because we all thought Sting got out of the limo that night. One of my favorite characters, i got to tell you. Jeff really pulled it off. And the funny part about it is I didn't even remember the guy's name for the longest. <laughs> I knew him only as NWO Sting. <laughs> Just like the fans would, which makes it even funnier. And, you know, the person Sting, Steve Borden, is such a great guy, such a gracious person. And, I mean, he's one of those guys that you just can't not like. He's just good at it. He's a great athlete. He's a great person. And he's so easy to work with. And then to have somebody who looks very similar and is easy to work with again and has such talent, that was just really great. See, I've always loved when wrestlers act as if there's some other wrestler. So let me take you off, off track a little bit and talk about something that never hit air which I thought it would have been great. So Mick Foley was on his way out, but trying to keep his way in and had proposed this series of wrestling events that he would be involved with where he would become different wrestlers because he got conked on the head one way or another or whatever. He would try and mess up his personality, kind of like He's able to take, you know, like the do love character, or, you know, making the sock puppet or <laughs> being mankind behind the mask or whatever. 
kind of he took that concept and ran with it at WWE. But he had thought about that before when he was Cactus Jack. And it was a series of wrestling matches where he would eventually think he was staying. Trim down a little bit, get his hair all cut, make it, you know, uh, platinum blonde and whatever, and look and try to act just like staying. <laughs> so it would have been, you know, somewhat absurd, obviously, because of the body shape. But it would have been, I think, entertaining and Mick Foley's able to do about anything, and I think it'll really work, but it just never hit the air. Um, he actually employed my ex-wife, Ann, to be able to help him write that whole thing and the whole presentation that he actually did give to some of the higher-ups at WCW, but it just never worked. But, yeah, I think um, when the NWO Sting came on, and to see that, <laughs> I've always loved that. I, I always loved when other wrestlers would wear like a mask wrestler's mask and it's just something that to me it's there's always entertainment value in it you know when you're acting like somebody else because how mad the person who's a real person can get even though it is often considered you know the sincerest form of flatter flattery but i really liked a lot of what they did with the same character when they would have like many many stings you know wearing the long jackets and carrying the baseball bats and so many of those style productions, I think they're really well executed. Unfortunately, I can't say that I had any hand in that one, but they did it so many times so well, I thought. And that's something that really worked. And to have, you know, Sting come out of the sky and even pick people like DDP up and put a harness on him and take him into the sky, things like that, I thought it really worked even though Sting asked me about him turning to this crow-type character, what I thought about it. <laughs> I really didn't think it was a great idea. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. that, was, uh, that was one of the faux pas in my life, <laughs> telling him that. But it all worked out in the end, so I'm glad to see Sting, you know, even having success so recently. And, you know, all the accolades he got from WWE is really terrific. He's a great guy. And I love NWS Sting, I thought. It was just so well done. But, yeah, it kind of got pushed off to the side. But for a while there, it's pretty popular. And hopefully he's going uh, to make some serious bucks off of it in Japan. I know he's very popular over there as well. And I'd like to hear, you know, the podcast about that. So if you guys can send me a link to that, I'd, I'd love to hear it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, one of the uh, one of our final episodes of uh, 2017, and it was uh, it was filled with a lot of great info, and he did. He, he went into detail about the time in Japan and the NWO Japan, but that's obviously, that is, you know, you can listen to that because that'll, that'll take us off on another path. But quickly here, I just want to touch, you said about mm-hmm. saying we never thought that he could be anything but that uh, very colorful, mm-hmm. very uh, energetic, you know, the woo thing. We never thought he'd be anything else, but, you know, you mentioned multiple things. i got to ask. They did throw people under those masks, so can you confirm or deny? Were you ever asked to be a uh, random sting anywhere in the building? Now, that is a very insightful question that I bet you don't know the answer to. So would you say yes or no? I don't. That's why I'm throwing it out there. <laughs> so, you you know, as announcers, a lot of times we got to play dumb, and I know you guys never do because you're geniuses. But <laughs> in this case, okay. Here's an insider deal. Yes, I was Sting. Okay, do you know where I was Sting? 
I'm going to think it's a nitro because I know there was a many time where the the, the multiple stings uh, came out. John, I'm going to I'm going to defer to you because you're a, you're the uh, the nitro database. So can you recall a Monday nitro ending where there were multiple stings? Oh wait a minute, no, what? you didn't ask that question. You asked if at any, if at any point was I a sting? Right? Oh okay, all right. Yeah. So no, I yeah. don't know. Okay, so let's leave it wide open and say, Neil, at any point, were you sting? That's the question. All right, what's your answer, John? I'm gonna, I, with the way you're kind of saying it, I would have to say yes, somehow. I'm just trying to think of how or where or when. That, that's, that's really uh, a trivia question above all trivia questions. All right, I'll answer it for you right here. Okay, so one of my favorite fun little shoots, side projects that I did, which actually made air, was I thought the NWO should make fun of Sting coming out of the sky. I mean, he did it all the time. I had to get on their nerves. So I'm like, you know what? We're going to make something where we're going to make fun of Sting coming out of the sky. So I had this idea that I talked to Bill Tinsley about, and he helped me execute it. And here's how it goes. Let's take Sting, the Sting doll. I'll drill a hole in Sting's back, okay? And then I'll put a rope on his back, just like he does on the show. And then we're going to use chroma key green. We're going into production here, so just bear with me, people who don't care about how to do TV and how to produce it. But I'm going to give you a little lesson on how to make something look kind of cool without really having to spend a whole lot of money. So we get the Sting doll. And we actually had more than one. But we do a mock commercial, making fun of Sting, using the Sting doll, with this rope hanging off his back. He starts to kind of drift down into the screen like he's coming down from the sky, like he always did. Well, then I get this big pair of garden shears. (laughs) And then I bring it into the screen, and I cut that rope. (laughs) And now Sting starts to fly through the air like a, maniac out of control that unfortunately is going nowhere but down. So obviously we want to have a really good reaction of Sting being very surprised going, oh my, what's going to happen now? So I put the mask on and I told Bill Tinsley, I said, get a super close-up of my eyes in the Sting mask. I'm going to act like I'm super surprised and scared. (laughs) So... (laughs) He got that shot, and then this is no joke. I said, Bill, our final shot is going to be this ring that I've just painted. I got one of those toy rings that we were selling, and I painted it and put some NWO decals on it. And I sat in our studio, and I said, the shot we have to get, Unfortunately, you're going to have to climb this ladder to get it because I'm game for anything. He always was. So the cameras were fairly heavy, so he had it in his right hand. And he takes the sting doll up to the top of the ladder with his left hand. And I go, Bill, just shoot the camera down and get the whole ring in there. You know, make it a little bit wider than we need to have because I can always crop it and fix it in the end if we need to remove. I said, and try to drop that sting right in the center of the ring. 
So Bill climbs up there. I hand him the doll and the camera. He points it perfectly in the center of the camera. Uh, excuse me, he puts center of the canvas. And he takes that doll and drops it perfectly the very first time, splat right in the middle of the ring. <laughs> I thought it was a very entertaining promo. It was one of the funnest things I ever got to do by myself as a little side project. And that is when Neil was called upon to be Sting. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, awesome. All right. Uh, there's something a lot of people uh, definitely didn't know, that uh, you were once <laughs> basically a fake Sting. And that was a uh, right. very, very uh, well done little angle there. It was very, very funny. That was fun. Thank you. That's it, man. That's all I was able to be Sting. I can never be Sting. Everyone wants Sting. That is awesome, and Sting was uh, the the Batman of WCW, if you will. But as I start to uh, wind it down a bit here, I'm always curious, especially with you, and as far as producing and work, working with the wrestlers, who was your favorite wrestler to produce for and work with and kind of collaborate with? Was there a favorite or a couple favorites that you had? Without a doubt. You never knew what Flair was going to do. He was... Uh... It's fun to work with. I wouldn't say my favorite because he kind of gave me nightmares a little bit when I used to produce the flare for the gold segment. He would take a shower and come out with his hair all relaxed and go through the rehearsal, which should have been called Take One, <laughs> like any movie. <laughs> well, we'd have been able to use Take One if he'd have looked like Take Two, but he didn't. So he almost always had to take the second take when his hair is all fluffy. But I you enjoyed any time I was in the same room with Mick Foley. I thought he was wonderful. Hulk was a pleasure to work with with me. But I got to say, my favorite is probably going to be, well, I like Diamond Dallas Page, too, because he was willing to do whatever, and he was always taking up something to do. I would have to say, Randy Macho Man Savage. Oh, yeah, brother. Because he had had his character so well developed and was always on time, ready to go with his outfit and everything. And I thought one of the icons of the sport that I kind of remember when I was in college when I didn't really appreciate person coming on my television but remembering him, and he's just an unforgettable character. And to have somebody, I thought, of that high status and that much ability to say, hey, brother, come, give me some verbiage. I trust you. You know, just let me know what you want me to say. You know, we'll work together on it. That was an honor. I mean, that guy, he's made some serious impact. And I know he had issues with other people and trust factor and things like that. But to say that Macho Man trusted me is kind of a cool thing. And he was probably my favorite because he was always ready, super professional, had a well-honed-in character, and was entertaining and a great wrestler and a terrific athlete. Now, was he a little bit over the edge? Probably. But 
that's probably what made it fun. <laughs> so, Randy Macho Man Savage. Yeah. Great yeah. impersonation. Great impersonation, too. He, uh, if, if you're sculpting the, the perfect professional wrestler, I always think it's a guy like Macho Man who can talk, who can wrestle, mm-hmm. who has the psychology. Yep. He's got the look. He basically is right. you know, a 10 out of 10 on, on every yeah. criteria, criteria you would go with. Absolutely. I agree, 100%. He's got it all. And he, get, he was a great performer. He was terrific. Yeah. Macho Man. <laughs> Now, as far as your favorite thing to work on, your favorite segment, your favorite part of WCW, would it be your work on the NWO and branding the NWO to what it become, to the fact that it's still around today and you see celebrities wearing it, you see you know, wrestlers wearing it, you see everyone still wearing it today, basically? Well, it's probably what I was most noted for, I guess, if you want to talk about that. Was it my favorite Sometimes it was. Sometimes it's the most frustrating because I didn't always have cooperative participants. <laughs> hmm. Sometimes Big Sexy wouldn't do what I wanted him to do. So that kind of got on my nerves sometimes. Just being a producer in general, a video producer, is part production person, part coach part psychologist and I think that's probably what makes it the most fun for me but sometimes I just didn't understand why people did stuff the way they did it like sometimes during the NWO I would have to keep a running tab in my mind what they were talking about and how I was going to be able to transition from one subject matter to the next and really I think anybody could put together something that made fairly good sense if they would videotape a bunch of good talking wrestlers for about 10 or 15 minutes and then just try to boil that down into a few minutes. I think most people could do a fairly good job at it. But what made it work well, I think, is the transitions of what you had to have them say to bridge all that information together. And that's something that I kind of had to be pretty good at. So with that said, they wouldn't really know when you're up there in front of Cameron, and oftentimes when I'm speaking on these podcasts, unfortunately I'm just kind of going off on my own little rabbit trail direction. It's kind of hard for a creative person like me just to stay in the, same lane, you know, I go all over the highway. Well, that's what they would do when they would talk. They would go all over the place. So at some point, you got to kind of bring them back within the highway, within the rails. And you got to say, okay, remember when you said this earlier? Well, I want to tie that with what you said there. So what I need you to say is this line. So I would give them a line. And I'll be damned if sometimes Kevin Nash just did not want to do it. And it would, I mean, we'd sit there and go, Scott, okay, now, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash are standing right next to each other. I would have to look at Scott Hall and go, Scott, can you get Big Sexy to say this for me? Because he wouldn't. 
It was the weirdest. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I kind of almost wish they would have had a camera on us why I'm trying to negotiate this to get it done. It was very odd. So that was different. And yes, so probably best known for it, but sometimes it was one of the toughest jobs I ever had. But I really enjoyed just going out and being told, you know what, we need you to be here tomorrow and we need you to do this and just make something up on the spot. I mean, I'd have to make a storyboard in my head and figure out, okay, so you want to fight to the back in here, do this, and you want to make it look like it's a small camera and you kind of do So I would look around and just kind of gather all my resources. Okay, who am I working with? Who's my camera person? Who's the audio person? And, you know, it didn't really matter because they're all great. Any Anyone that you'd pick would be terrific. But some of them were better at doing certain things than others, and some of them understood my process maybe better than other ones because they'd worked with me in the past or whatever. So working with those kind of crews was a great part of my job. But I think the most exciting, most fun part for me was just being, and I know this is kind of weird to say, being put on the spot, saying, okay, we need you to pull up this miraculous thing with no prep time. <laughs> now go. <laughs> and we did. And I think, and that way, as frustrating as it could be, you know, for most people, I think, to be thrown into a situation like that, I thrived on it. I thought it was a blast. And that's one of the parts I like the most was the challenge of, okay, can we, as a production group here, collectively pull this off? And they want us to do this in how much time? And they want it to air when? Wow. Okay, let's go. Let's do it. That was the funnest part of the job. And you succeeded, obviously, a lot at what you were doing. And now, with your podcast, another success for you. And it's great to see you covering a lot of different topics. Even the big topic was the final Nitro, the end of WCW, obviously Shane McMahon showing up and showing up on the TV screen. So all kind of cool different stories you have on your podcast. Is there a favorite story you're able to retell on the podcast? Well, Guy Evans does such a great job on teeing me up on all this. He just throws those easy home run balls in there and just really takes my wild thoughts and kind of makes sense out of them and brings a perspective of what the fan would want to hear me talk about. So I don't know. I I didn't go through it. I didn't watch it myself. I was just so busy working with the great crews that we had that I was just doing my job and helping helping to entertain other people with the gifts that I was given from God. But Guy, he's the glue. He really makes it work because he's so good at being insightful on, well, this would be interesting to talk about this. In the book that he's writing, it's going to be absolutely terrific. So it's uh, The Incredible Rise and Inevitable Collapse of Ted Turner's WCW. I mean, that book coming out in March, you got to have it. It's going to feature people that, you know, we never got to talk to. And it's going to be a really, really great read. So we have fun exploring things that other people don't on their podcast. And I think that's, in fact, what makes us unique. But if you're not into how the wrestling is made, it might not be 
quite so interesting as if you're just only a fan of seeing it in front of the lens. We go behind it. We do open up the curtain. As Lon Anderson said, that's what people want to see. What is behind the curtain? And we try to show you that. At least talk about yeah, it. Yeah, you, de- you, you definitely are. You're doing a great job. And, of course, as we've been talking about the secrets of WCW Nitro podcast, you can get it on iTunes. And as we get forward here to the big plug the big ender here to discuss the show and its last uh, closing moments of this show, you know, i got to say, uh, if you're ever looking to explore the secrets of WCW Pro and WCW Worldwide, then the two-man power trip might be there to uh, to help you out. But when you look back <laughs> at all the things you've done, we like to end this with a nice, you know, what is your stamp left in the wrestling business? What do you feel you've left? But since you do so much just in television production and, and as a producer, you know, what do you feel your greatest accomplishment is uh, and, and the legacy that you would leave behind in uh, the field that you've done so well in throughout your entire life. Wow. Two-man power crew getting just deep here at the end. <laughs> the Barbara Walters <laughs> question is what we call it. I'm telling you what, man, I got tears in my eyes. I'll tell you, get, get the super <laughs> close-up. Stream close-up right now. See if he's going to cry. <laughs> well, I think if there's anything I'd like to choose, it would be, was I fair? Did I help somebody along the way? Was I able to bring joy to somebody else? I mean, as simple and corny as that is, I think that's probably it. I really like working with people and developing them. That's just a real joy to me, to be able to see somebody and how they were before they talked to me or before they worked with me and what our relationship was after. And I just hope in the majority of cases it was a very positive one. I know we talk about sometimes where we did, in fact, weed people out of our production that didn't really want to go along with goofy wrestling or whatever you want to call it. And, yeah, you know, it's not always, you know, glamorous. and It is sometimes goofy, but it's fun. And I hope the majority of people that work with me could say, yeah, you know what, we had fun. And we did good work because he let us do what we could do best. And he let my talent shine. And I hope that's what I did with a lot of people. And I think I did. And that's the kind of people I enjoyed working with and got to numerous times on numerous productions at Turner. Some of the great names I mentioned earlier. And that's what I hope, you know, people would remember me by. Did we have a good time? Did we entertain people? And was I maybe a little bit better than I was before I met this guy? That's cool. That's very cool. And you entertain a lot of people tonight, and you told a lot of great stories. And we thank you so much for diving deep with us. So now, again, like I said, the big plug here. So tell us where we can find everything about the Secrets of WCW Nitro podcast, as well as where we can connect with you in the big old world of social media and anything else that you've got going on in the world of the one and only Neil Pruitt. Well, you can definitely connect to us by going to iTunes, Neil Pruitt's Secrets of WCW Nitro, and you know, hit the subscribe button. And anytime we have information out on Facebook or you know, anywhere in the social media, if you have any questions that you have, you need me to answer. And if I don't know the answer, I'll try to find the person who is the expert at it. Like, for instance, somebody at some point wanted to know, how much do those big 
WCW letters in the set, how much do they weigh? Or how many pounds of dry ice did you use when you were doing the WCW Saturday Night Producing? Weird questions like that. We can have them answered. So if you, you know, look us up on social media, on Facebook, just, you know, under the Upload Secrets of WCW Nitro. This is why I really need Guy to, Guy Evans to tell us uh, where to go. But um, let's see, the WCWNitroBook.com. I think that's our website. But uh, you can definitely find us out there. And we'll obviously promote the heck out of Guy's book coming up. And it's just a great read and something that I'm going to be very happy to help him promote. So Guy Evans, great writer, really got some really awesome information coming your way. So look us up at the WCWNitroBook.com. You can contact us there, too. So we just want to thank everybody. It's been a pleasure being on with you guys and letting me relive some of my fun times that I had with so many great people in the crazy business of what we call Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.